You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We're continuing on in a series that we started actually earlier in the summer in this season in the Psalms, and I, I'm, I'm going to tag team with my friend and colleague, uh, Doug Webster. So I'm, I'll teach this week. I think he's on next week, and then we'll kind of go back and forth for, I, I believe, up until Rally Day. I think that's the idea. Um, and I'll put in a commercial, um, which I'm, I'm, I'm nervous and excited about. My uh, David Fleming and I are going to co-teach a class beginning, I think, in October. I, I don't think it'll be in here. It'll probably be some, another classroom, but we're going to co-teach a class on um, understanding and living in our city. And so the, the idea is going to be to kind of bring together an exposition of the book of Nehemiah um, with uh, some thought about our place in Birmingham and what that means. And so Dave and I have been talking. He's, he's the man on these things within our city. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to, to kind of dive in on that issue with him and think about some hard topics and some important topics and what it means for us to have the sort of providence of place that we're here located in the city and what does that mean. And um, so give some prayer to that, if you don't mind, and, and also sort of put it in your in your hopper as a, as a possibility uh, coming down the road. So that's sometime in October. But for now, we'll stay in the Psalms. And the psalm that we're doing today, if you have a phone near you, is Psalm 39. And I have to tell you, I, I like this psalm very much. Now, I, I sound like a broken record on this, I know, because I like all of them very much. Um, but this one, there's something visceral and personal, and there's something honest about this psalm that I think is reflective of, of what all of us feel in our human nature and our lives live before God. So if we put the card just slightly in reverse, you recognize that the Psalms themselves are an invitation to live all of life in God's presence. What does that mean to live all of life in God's presence? And in the beauty of the Psalms, Calvin called them an anatomy of all the parts of our souls. The beauty of the Psalms is that the Psalms exist as something that's there and other than us. In other words, they're, they're not us, they're distinct from us. And yet the Psalms and all of their contours and differences one from another are waiting on you for the various moments of your life that you will eventually meet. Whether you are on the mountaintop of joy, whether you are in the valley of despair, whether you have been delivered from some a misfortune. I mean, God has words, if you're in search of wisdom, that God has words to give to you to help you speak to him in ways that he authorizes you to speak. And the Psalms, in that sense, are a, are a are school. It's the Sunday school of the Bible, are the Psalms teaching us how, how to speak to God. And in book one of the Psalms, which are Psalms 1 through 41, 39 hovers right here in the midst of these this dense collection of David Psalms. So a high density of David Psalms here in book one and Psalm 39 is a Psalm that commentators, and I was sort of reading on this a little bit this week, commentators have struggled to classify this Psalm. So what do I mean by classifying it? 
Well, 120 years ago now, and it goes further than this, but 120 years ago or so, Bible scholarship on the Psalms heavily emphasized what we call maybe genre analysis or form analysis. And I won't bore you with the details because I don't want to lose you, but the idea of this particular interpretive approach is to identify the kind of psalm that you're dealing with. And if you can identify the kind of psalm that it is, that will provide for you an interpretive lens by which to read the psalm, number one, and number two, the way in which you can locate that psalm in Israel's ancient religious and political life. So, for example, Psalm 2 says things like, Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. I've, I've anointed my, my king and set him on his throne. That language of Psalm 2 um, is understood as language that's located in enthronement rituals of ancient Israel. So whenever there was, a, think for example, we'll see this soon in England. Whenever you have the exchange of the, of the crown in England, there's a certain ceremony that they go through. How many of you watched the crown, right? Saw season one when Queen Elizabeth, the amazing woman, uh, longest reigning monarch. Um, and of course, when she comes in, they, they sing, um, is it Hayden or Handel's? Zadok the priest, da, 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 da. Handel? Yeah, okay, handle, um, and the God save the queen. We're, we're going to hear it again soon, right? Because there's a certain form, there's a certain ritual that happens when the king or the queen is coronated in England. Well, there probably was in ancient Israel as well. And the suggestion is that a psalm like Psalm 2 is one of those ancient Israelite coronation psalms. Now, I have real reservations. Well, there's a lot of good that's come from that kind of analysis, but there's also a kind of limitation that's come from that analysis that sometimes hems in the Psalms in their ancient world and doesn't unlock them for our world, which is where I think they are most, um, their most proper location is kind of in our backyard right now. I think that's the intent of them within our Bible. But the point is, the Psalms have a form or a shape that reveals a moment in time in ancient Israel, and you can find them, right? A lament psalm, a thanksgiving psalm a royal psalm, a Torah psalm, a wisdom psalm. And we categorize these psalms because they share certain features together and we lump them together and then that provides for us a kind of interpretive or reading pool by which to understand all the various psalms that are there. There's a lot of good in that, a lot of limitations as well. Psalm 39 is a fun one. You want to know why? It's, it, they don't know how to categorize it. Like, Where, where does this fit? Or some psalms will start off and you're going, oh yes, Psalm 44 is a good example. Oh yes, Thanksgiving psalm. Da -da 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 -da. Uh-oh, midway through, it shifts to lament. And then to resolution of lament, and then kind of back to Thanksgiving. And you're like, oh, you can't, I mean, don't, don't start blending these forms on us, right? So they can, it can become confusing. Psalm 39, it betrays any sort of simple codification when it comes to where it fits within ancient Israel's life. And I love that. Because that is a kind of green light to say, all right, because it doesn't fit easily there, that's an open door for you and for me to enter into the front door of this psalm and say, how does this psalm meet us in the mirror of our own existence? The in other words, the historical circumstances that gave rise to Psalm 39 are not evident 
It's not clear what the situation was in David's life, and he wrote this psalm, that led to this particular psalm. For some, you should know this, for some interpreters of the Bible, that drives them nuts. And those I've got to link these psalms to some historical moment so that I can make sense of them. And I just happen to be one of those, and, and, and they're very, very good. You just happen to have the guy today that's not all that interested in that. And I was like, well, if I can know, that's great. If I don't, all the better. Because these psalms are not tethered to their historical moment in such a way that they don't meet us in the immediacy of our own lives. That's, that's, and by the way, that's why they're in our Bible. They're not in our Bible just as a kind of history lesson so that we can understand the psychological and religious profile of ancient David, as fascinating as that is. These psalms are here canonically as the prayer book of the Bible to shape our language through these words as we relate to God in all of the facets of our lives. So here's Psalm 39. Can I, I'm going to read it to you. It's a long one. Well, 13 verses isn't too bad, but it's kind of longish. So let me read this to you. Oh, our time's already up. I'm joking. We have more time. <laughs> Psalm 39. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. So long as the wicked are in my presence, I was mute and silent. Now, just as an aside, this is an interesting turn of phrase here. A lot of translators translate this. I held my peace to no avail. That's a very free translation. Really, kind of what it says here is, I didn't even speak good things. That, that's what he's saying here. So it wasn't just bad things. And God, I'm, I'm holding my mouth completely from either bad things or good things. I'm resolved to do this. And, my, and, and so I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire began to burn. And then I spoke with my tongue. Verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. You've made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all humanity stands as a mere breath. For you, we're going to come back to this, but you Ecclesiastes people out there, does that word breath sound familiar? That's hevel. That's vanity of vanities in Ecclesiastes, right? So, and I'm going to come back to this, but just so you know, this author in Psalm 39, David and uh, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes are speaking to one another in the Bible. That's what's going on here. Um, make me to know how fleeting my days are. You've made my, my days as a few hand breaths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all humanity stands as a breath. A man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing there in turmoil, man heaps upon wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Don't make me the scorn of the fool. I'm mute. I don't open my mouth for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all humanity is just a mere breath. Hevel. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, like all of my fathers, just a guest. Look away from me that I may smile again. Now this is, this is a hard verse right here. He's speaking to God. Look away from me so that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. 
I, I don't know. Again, these, this psalm betrays simple categorizations for my own money. I'll just, I kind of just label this very simply a psalm of honest discouragement. Not much is said about the occasion that gives rise to it, but it opens itself up to multiple reading strategies depending on, I think, the position of your life as a reader. And look at the first three verses. And this is, I think, where the gold is in in the psalm, right? Look at the first three verses. I said, I will guard my ways. So what, what, what do we call this? Here's the resolution of the will. right? Here's the psalmist on December 31 writing some things out. Right. Okay. I've, I've really, I mean, and, and we'll get to James two. Well, we'll we probably won't, but James two, you've all read it before. If we sin with ease, we sin most easily with our mouths. <laughs> right. And we know it. Um, I mean, this, if, if, what did James say? Drawing by the way, on the tradition of the Proverbs and drawing on the tradition of the Psalms. If a human being can bridle their tongue, then they can bridle all of their passions as well. If you can get a hold of what comes out of your mouth, um, and, I, and I feel the weight of this because um, James 2 tells people, if you've read it, the sins of the mouth are a real deal. Um, we sow the wild oats of our words willy-nilly, not always recognizing the consequences of them. And then James goes in and gives a warning to people like me. You know this, right? By the way, you might want to think about that before you become a teacher. Because if you're a teacher and you do a lot of mouth stuff and you talk a lot, then you are especially vulnerable to the sins of the mouth. Um, so, I, again, lots of ways to read this here. I'm, let me give you kind of a couple points of entry. Um, I think we've all had that experience. We've known that experience where we've gone to the dinner party or out to dinner or we just hit the red button on our iPhones and hung up with the person that we had the long conversation with and we are immediately aware that we said way more than we should have. Right. Way more. A matter of fact, and, and this is why I feel this coming back on me, I have a, all of my children, but one in particular right now is particularly gifted at what we call verbal diarrhea. I'm sorry to say it that way. Um, I mean, just if, it, if the synapses are firing, the mouth is moving, right? And, and, and sometimes we'll just double take like that. You know, and we'll tell them, you're at the age now where you saying things like that, it's not cute anymore. Like when you're eight, nine, that's like, oh, look, look. but now it's it, game's over. Right? That's not cute anymore. So, but, but as I'm saying this to my son, getting on to him, I'm so, I'm 45 I, I, all the time. Oh my, there I went again, right? So here's the psalmist. And again, we don't know the circumstances. He gives us a little clue when he says in verse um, at the end of verse one, so long as the wicked are in my presence. So there's something here about King David's sphere of influence or those that are around him that is causing him to reserve comment from his tongue. But again, that can be extrapolated in such in, in multiple ways in our own lives because we know what it is to go into that moment and say, I'm going to go to this setting. And I know that that particular person, uh, and it's not necessarily the person's fault, but for whatever reason, that person lowers my guard in such a way that I just become a spigot of words. And they flow out. Not this time. 
We're, we're, we're going to dinner with them Friday night. Not this time. Um, I'm going to see them at the ball game. I'm going to see that dad at the ball game who can touch a nerve on me. And I start talking dad talk to at the ball game, right? You know what that talk's like. And not, not this game. I'm not going to do it this game. So th- this is what this, this psalm is saying. I've, I resolved. I'm not going to speak good. I'm not going to speak bad. I'm going to reserve my tongue from speaking. I'm going to guard and measure my ways. You got to love it. And then look what he says. Verse two, I was mute. I was silent. I kept my peace. To no avail, my heart, and then verse 3, you can just feel it, right? It's like, you hear the pressure pot. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire began to burn. And I love the simplicity of the way in which this, this, these three verses work. In, in the Hebrew text, not to bore you with details, but in the Hebrew text, it just says, and I spoke with my tongue. That's the end of verse 3. So you see how it begins? It's a beautiful kind of poetic device here. Verse 1 says, I'm not going to sin with my tongue. That's how it starts. And then verse 3 says, I spoke with my tongue. So here you see, right, the failure of a resolved will, even in the face of good intentions. I'm not going to speak. I'm going to hold my tongue. I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. I can endure the challenge before me. Resolution failure, despair, prayer. That's the, mo- that's the movement. I resolved, I failed, I despaired, and I prayed. Um, I was, I was going to read, our time is kind of flying this morning. I was going to read to you all a little bit of the, um, <laughs> maybe this was a mistake anyway, so the Lord's kind, but some of the French essayist Montagnier, who wrote this incredible essay entitled On the Inconstancy of Man where um, Montagnier sort of walks through and says, one day I'm courageous and the next day I'm not. One day I'm virtuous, the next day I'm riddled with deceit. One day I'm this, the next day I'm that. And his point in this whole essay is, if you think you don't understand the other person, beware to judge another person too quickly, according to the moment you've just experienced. Because you don't even experience yourself in a way that's constant. Who knows what you will be like tomorrow? And that's, I think, what the psalmist is saying here. I'm resolved in my will to do better this time. And yet, I spoke. I, 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 I failed in my resolution. Um, if any of you have read some in the life of Jonathan Edwards, Edwards was famous for writing these resolutions. And they were really sort of detailed. Resolved never to eat, you know, um, beans after 3 p.m. I mean, these kinds of resolutions. Resolve to think the best thoughts possible at all times. You read these and you go, a teenager wrote that, all right? Um, I, I like reading Psalm 39 because I think Psalm 39 sits right, at least in my backyard. I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to resolve. I'm not going to speak. My heart grew hot. I got angry and then I spoke. So that's, that's the despair of a failed resolution. And what I love about Psalm 39 is what follows right on the heels of the despair. Here's the prayer. So the first three verses, those are self-talk. That's the talk to the self. Um, I'm resolved. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to hold my tongue. I won't speak. I'm resolved. That's a self-conversation. The failure of that forces the psalmist into a conversation with God, which is the right direction. 
This is, in other words, the, the, the failure itself, if I can use Luther's language, the second use of the law that shows us our inability to live up to the demands that God places on us, when rightly executed, forces us to our Savior to recognize that we need something other than our best resolutions and our will at its best. And this is where the psalmist turns. And look how he prays, verse 4. O Lord... Make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Now, let me just stop there for a second. We'll, we'll kind of press through this. Isn't that, can't you relate? <laughs> I mean, I know I can relate. I mean, here he is on the far side of his failure again, his discouragement in the face of the resolution of his will to do something that was good. And what's the honesty that comes out of this? I'm human. And Lord, you know that I'm human. You know that I'm frail. This, by the way, is a repeated. There are several refrains that repeat themselves through the Psalms. One we've talked about a lot over the summer. How blessed are those who take refuge in you. You'll find that like a red thread working its way throughout the whole of the Psalter. Where here's the psalmist entering into another one of those red threads, which is, help me to remember the measure of my days. Help me to remember my limitations. Help me to know that I'm just a breath. Um, as, as, as one psalmist says, and I think it's in the 30s, actually, I can't remember which one, but in the 30s somewhere, the psalmist says, you know my frame, I'm just dust. You were there, God, when you took the dust of the ground and formed it and breathed into man, into Adam, and he became a living being. You were there when that happened, and you remember the materials that you used to do that. Just dust. I'm just dust. I'm frail. I'm here, and then I'm gone. So what you have the psalmist speaking about here as he confesses this to the Lord. So, so do you see the spiritual kind of formative movement that's happening here? A recognition of personal inadequacy, the failure of the will to live up to its best intentions, which forces us to prayer and a prayer that's marked by honesty before the living God. Um, and that, I do think, is one of the great gifts that the psalmist gives us, is this sense of freedom to be honest before the Lord who already knows. That's what's so good. And, and, and we're, we're going to go to the gentle and loving part. It's coming. But there's some hard parts before we get there. Because when you are before the Lord, you recognize that He really sees you for who you are. There is no hiding and, and, and I think the first three verses, if I'm reading them, and maybe I'm projecting too much here, so take this with a grain of salt. But if I'm reading the first three verses in the context of our world and our lives, this is the psalmist doing his best to mask his true self, which we all do. And by the way, we should. I mean, that's that, that famous New Yorker cartoon at the dinner party where the wife says, whatever you do tonight, honey, don't be yourself, right? Um, you know, so, I mean, we, there's some, we teach our kids, I, 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 we talk, I don't know if you do this, is, we teach our kids, I know, I know that you think that particular thing is stupid, um, but just do it, right? I mean, just fake it till you make it. I mean, that's just part of learning to interact with human beings and becoming an adult. So I, I get the pretense of our social orders and the kind of rules that we have to live by. Um, but here's the psalmist in the face of that saying, behind the pretenses, behind the social masking, God, you see me for who I really am. You know the truth about me. 
And I know the truth about me too right now in, in ways that I didn't two days before. See, that's the deal. We're coming to a knowledge of ourselves and a knowledge of God too. And if you remember, for those of you who maybe spent time with John Calvin, John Calvin says that is at the heart of what it means to be a theologian seeking God's thoughts after him. Knowledge of God and true knowledge of the self. And true knowledge of the self is only attainable in light of true knowledge of God. I can't construct myself according to some social construct outside of the truth of God's being and how that compels me to come to terms with who I truly am. And now here I am laid bare before you once again, and I'm going to pray. And here's my prayer. Lord, you really know me. And you know that my days are limited. And you know that everything in my life is hevel. It's a breath. It's smoke. It's vanity. This is why, and we've done it here enough, so I won't lean into it this morning, but this is why the book of Ecclesiastes feels like a book that was written yesterday. I mean, you talk about a book that feels like it just comes right out of the angst of the 20th century all the way into the 21st century that we're feeling right now in our cultural and intellectual and philosophical moments. Like Ecclesiastes is sitting on your front porch. When I look at life under the sun, when I consider the pursuit of wisdom, when I consider the pursuit of pleasure, when I consider the pursuit of my work, my vocation, my toil, what is all of this? Where does it go? I spend my life building my business, working hard to kind of pad my 401k, to present myself ready for my 70s, only to know that I'm going to die in my 90s. And here's the Kohelet at the end of his life saying, what is all of this? What does it mean for a human being to live in the breath, the hevel, the, the, uh, the ungraspable character of their existence? What does it mean to do that? And here the psalmist is raising the same question. By the way, the language of Psalm 39 and the language of Ecclesiastes shares very much in common. And what happens to Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes? What happens to the psalmist here? Honest understanding of who God is. Fear God and keep His commandments. Live life under the view and the face of God. That's where true humanity is to be found. And let that release you to love him and to love your neighbor, recognizing that you are just a shadow. You are here and then you are gone. When you feel the sense of self-worth and importance come over in a way that's unrealistic, just remember that you are here and then you are gone. This is one of the reasons, and this is morbid, I know it's morbid. I love these old cemeteries around Birmingham. There's one that we discovered some old Methodist church out in Somewheresville. We were dropping some child off somewhere. Old Methodist church kind of walked through and to their parents. Um, <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Um, uh, but but in, in, in here at this old Methodist church in the middle of, of uh, Nowheresville was this old, old cemetery. You ever just walk these things? It's fascinating. Does, does, the, does the weight of that ever sit on you? I mean, I, I live in a house that was built in 1910. Some of you are in old houses as well. I wish I'd have never bought this house, but that's another conversation. <laughs> but I live in a house that was built in 1910. And, uh, and I feel this. I'm like, at some point in time, the Goldstein family, they were the original builders, they, they lived in this home and yelled at one another and loved one another and laughed and cried. And, I mean, they lived a full human existence as a family here in these walls, and they're gone. I don't even know who they are. 
Um, you walk around these cemeteries, you realize these are people that had full, robust lives. They walked around and, and were fearful about the future. Didn't know what was around the corner for them either. And yet here they are with everybody else and humanity meeting our end. Um, you know, we feel this right with the rise of the virus again, whatever this is going to mean. Um, you know, if there's any silver lining in all of this, it's the fact that we have before us in ways, frankly, that we always should. Right. But we don't. But we have before us the limitations of human science and even medical engineering to curtail things that threaten our human existence. We are a breath. We are here and then we're gone. And the psalmist is drawing you into something rich and profound here. Oh, Lord, let me measure my days. Why? So that I may know your smile again. See where he goes with all of this? Um, verse 7. What do I wait for, O Lord? Well, my hope is in you. That's the redirection. You see? My hope is not in the resolution of my will, although I'm going to give that a go again. Um, my hope is not in the raising of my affections, although I hope that really happens and believe that it will. But I know the inconstancy of the self well enough to know that my affections and my will, they unfortunately fluctuate, given so many circumstances in life. And here the psalmist says, and that's why my hope is ultimately in you. You'll notice something here that the psalmist, by the way, all the psalms do this. When they use the language of waiting in the Psalms, it's not waiting for a situation to pass. It's not waiting for us to get through COVID. I thought we'd be past this thing by now. That, that's not the language of the psalmist. The language of the psalmist is, when I feel like I'm waiting for something to pass, I'm not waiting for that. Lord, I have to wait on you. It drives me to you where my ultimate hope is. And then what does he say? Deliver me from my sins. Isn't that fascinating? I, so here you have the psalmist in recognition of his human frailty saying, number one, now I know my limitations again. I'm just a breath, O oh Lord. I'm, I've been humbled. And number two, would you forgive me of my sins? You see that there's an honor. Would you really forgive me of my rebellion against you? Would you forgive me of the hubris and the pride one more time? Would you forgive me the fact that I really thought I had the resources within myself to make everything better and right again? If the psalmists are telling us anything from beginning to end, the psalmists are letting us know that we are not our own best resource. We're just not. The Lord is our resource in Him. And I think all of us, if you have any humanity that's similar to my own, and I think you do, all of us recognize that we're having to be drawn back to that truth again and again and again. Do I really believe that it's true? Did that ever settle on you? All that crazy stuff we just did with the baptism in there. And, you know, we renounced the devil. Oh, who really believes in the devil? All right. Uh, we renounced Satan and his works. We're resolved to follow Christ and his word. And then we go through the Apostles' Creed together, confessing our baptismal creed once again. Does it ever sit on you like, do I really believe that's true? Because if I believe that stuff is true, that I'm confessing with all these fellow believers is true, if I believe that, then it changes everything again and again and again. If that's true, if God is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things, and last phrase, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, if all that stuff's really true, then the freedom 
that the psalmist and the Bible offers for you and to me to walk into those green and verdant pastures. That's real freedom. He is the Father Almighty. I do know how it ends. I can't navigate all the complexities here in such a way that I can mitigate danger and fear and anxiety. But I can put all of my hope in Him. Trust in Him. Look. What? Oh. I thought you were... That scared me down there, right? <laughs> verse 13. <laughs> Look away from me. Now this is a hard verse. That I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Now th- that, that verse actually can kind of cause your throat to stop a little bit, I think. Because uh, most psalms of lament or discouragement or despair, they end in praise. Most of them do. Um, Psalm 88, by the way, is another one that doesn't. Here here is the psalmist saying, don't let the heat of your judgment stare on me anymore so that I can smile once again. He's feeling the burden of his true human existence exposed in the presence of the living God. That's an experience, by the way, that I pray we all know at one point or another. Truly standing bare before the gaze of a holy God looking at us. Because you know in the Bible, from beginning to end, when that happens, it's rarely a happy experience for the person. Ask Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Just so you don't think this is an Old Testament thing, ask John on the Isle of Patmos when he sees Jesus, whom he used to lean on. Remember that? He used to sit at the the table and lean on Jesus' breast. The intimacy the two shared together. But now that same John sees Jesus in his resurrected glory. And when he sees him, he says, it's time for me to die. But this is over. So seeing that there, the searing reality of God's being, the, the heat of his beauty, I think is a way of phrasing it. Um, the psalm is saying, please don't look at me anymore so that I can smile. And if we're left there, we feel the burden of this psalm as if it's a kind of Kafka novel or something like that. Just sort of existential despair. I'm a cockroach. I don't know what to do anymore. But Psalm 39, like Psalm 88, I believe this very much, is placed intentionally right next to Psalm 40. Like Psalm 88 is placed intentionally next to Psalm 89. Because Psalm 39 blossoms into Psalm 40. And just look at how it goes here. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Just give me some peace in this human existence of mine. I know that I'm just a breath. Don't let your searing beauty uh, gaze on me anymore so that I can just smile a little bit in my life. He feels the honesty of it. And then what's verse 1 of Psalm 40? I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me, and He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. He, out of the miry bog, He set my feet on a rock. He made my steps secure. He's put a new song in my mouth. I mean, what's the song in Psalm 39? It's a song of human despair. By the way, that's honest despair. He's, he's, um, he's not disillusioned in Psalm 39. He gets things for where they really are. So the, the prayer of Psalm 39 is not Him just having to kind of you know, get, get things right on the therapeutic side. That's not, Psalm 39 is honest and real. 
But now God meets him in Psalm 40 with this. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who, who makes the Lord his trust. He does not go to the proud. And then the verses go on and on. As for me, I am poor and needy, the last verse. But the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. This week, I'll close with this. This week I was, <laughs> I was uh, late on a publishing deadline. And uh, so I spent some time this week finishing up a, 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 an article that I had been working on, reading um, some folks like Luther and Calvin and Cyril of Alexandria, folks from the tradition on Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is that first servant song. It's, Behold my servant, I've poured out my spirit on him. And then the servant, this servant song goes on to describe the servant who brings the justice of God into the world with some phraseology that is about as encouraging as one can find. And this is what, the, what Isaiah says. A bruised reed he will not break. A flickering flame he will not snuff out. And here you have Luther, Calvin, some of the best voices from the tradition saying, that's the character of our Savior. That's the one who we stand before with the heat of his beauty. Also knowing that we recognize in the heat of his beauty that he smiles on us in such a way that he knows that we're dust. He knows that we're frail. And when we come to him in our dust-like character, knowing that we're just a breath, how does he meet us? A bruised reed? Think about those of you who spend time on a river or a lake. That cattail that you see kind of just kind of dipping down in the water. Our God is not one who comes by and pushes it into the water. That flickering flame that you have in the middle of a dark night, he doesn't come along and blow that flame out. That's not his character. His character is gentle and kind, gracious toward those who recognize who they truly are. Now, here's the opposite of this, and let's be honest. To the proud and the obstinate, to those who continually give the stiff arm to the reality of their own existence in God, they will meet God in a different way. That should make all of us fearful. But for those who recognize that they're fallen in need of a Savior, just flesh, a mere handbreadth on this earth, standing before the searing heat of God's beauty, those who find themselves in that spot, a bruised reed, he will not break. A flickering flame, he does not blow out. So, oh Lord, we give this to you in this season. Knowing, Father, that we are prone to the resolution of the will to the desire to do better and to a recognition, O oh Lord, that so often we, our flesh meets up against the weaknesses of our own resolutions. We're not capable, Lord, to make ourselves what we should be. And yet here you are meeting us again in the truth of the gospel, standing with us by the riverbank, letting us know that a bruised reed you will not break. You do not blow out flickering flames. Lord, don't let us be among the members of the obstinate and the rebellious. Let us be those, Lord, who recognize our weakness, who turn to you, seeing our limitations and knowing that our hope is ultimately in you. And especially in this season where we feel especially vulnerable again, teach us, O oh Lord, to number our days, knowing, O oh Lord, that you have set them out before you. And in that we can trust and take hope. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.